Hello and good day to everybody out there in my creative tribe. This is your friend Chase Jarvis. Welcome to another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. You guys know the show. This is where I sit down with awesome humans. And today, no exception, but we're going to change it up just a little bit. My guest is a guest who has been on the show before, but not in this in this current sort of format, which I love. I love, you know, keeping it moving. And that's what we're doing today. My guest is Brandon Stanton, the creator of Wildly Famous. I think it's the highest, enga- the, it's the the social site with the highest engagement in the world, the humans of New York, something like 25 or 20 something million fans on Facebook, maybe 10 million or so on Insta or a million. I don't know. Just huge, huge audience. Brandon, because of the success of humans of New York, the multiple number one New York times bestseller. Every time he puts a book out, it goes straight to number one. His story is incredible. He's been on the podcast before, but let me tell you how, in the past, it's me asking him a bunch of questions, of course, around his books and around his sort of style, but never before have we heard Brandon's complete story out of his own mouth, in his own words. And to me, that's what makes this show, what we're about to hear, super exciting. I want, if you've ever wondered if you could chase a dream, you have to listen to this episode because Brandon talks in great detail about leaving his job, actually scratch that, being fired from his job as a bond trader in Chicago and thinking to himself, what is it that if I could do anything in the world, what, what and regardless of sort of risk or financial, what, what would I do? And it would be to take photographs. And so we, we he chronicles his own journey from Chicago to New York, where he basically put a a mattress on the floor in something that was not too, you know, not much larger than a closet and started photographing people with something like $250 to his name. Now, it doesn't matter if you have a a mortgage and a family and you're saying, I could never do that. Or if you're, you know, 17 and just leaving the house and this is exactly what you want. It doesn't matter. What matters is at the core, we all need to take a leap. We all need to transition from one thing to another. And there is almost no better story because Brandon is a super smart guy. He didn't, he didn't completely throw everything to the wind. He realized that this is something that he wanted to do. If he could control how he spent his time, he could control his happiness, which he does an amazing job of articulating that view. And now you see the success. Uh, it's just a very inspiring story, but rarely does anyone get to hear this in his own words? He, he gives a, a half a dozen speeches a year around the world. We got him to come talk in a, in a small environment with a handful of, of photographers, and he was happy enough to let me put this on the podcast. So, as the, I, I don't know, this is the, I think this is a, <laughs> consider, I consider myself very lucky to have listened to the story, and I hope you do too. I hope it motivates you, and if you, if you get a chance, please give him a shout out on the socials. He's at humans of of ny can't miss him <laughs> he's everywhere out there but uh talks about from going from his first post which had i think zero likes and one comment to hundreds and hundreds of thousands of comments and an insane engagement now he's making documentary films he's got one on the new facebook watch platform and on and on truly a dream come true all right i'm gonna get out of the way and let brandon stanton founder of humans of new york tell you his story This episode of Chase Jarvis Live Show is brought to you by Creative Live. Creative Live is the world's largest and best platform for creative and entrepreneurial education. And right now you're saying, wait a minute, isn't that the company that you started? 
Yes, it is. It is my company, but they make this show possible. And if you don't know anything about Creative Live, you must check it out. It's where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best teach photo, video, art design, music and audio, craft and maker, and the ability to make a living and a life in all of those disciplines. There is free content there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And there's also more than 10,000 hours of content for you to access on demand. You guys know I'm a huge believer in the power of daily habits. And today, Creative Live, as a part of the sponsor announcement, wants you to know that they have a new, very powerful way to make education a part of your daily routine. That would be the Creative Live iPhone, iPad, and Apple TV apps. They're all free, and they let you watch all of the Creative Live classes that are on-air streaming for free, anything you already own, and on the iPhone and iPad apps, you can watch one daily lesson of your choosing for free. That is one of 25,000 lessons for free, which is super, <laughs> super gnarly. To get those apps, go to the App Store, uh, iTunes, and search Creative Live, or go to creativelive.com slash apps. There you go. Now, let's get into the show. Obviously, you know what I do, for those of you who are familiar with my work, I just stop random people on the streets of New York City, uh, and can't even really call it an interview these days because it's evolved more into like a therapy session. We just talked about some pretty deep stuff for about 45 minutes. Um, and I've gotten very good through, you know, approaching just 10,000 random people and interviewing them and telling them story. Very good at telling other people's stories. Um, you know, where to begin the story of Humans of New York uh, is, is sometimes difficult to, to find a starting point. But I normally begin uh, when I was working in Chicago. I was uh, working as a bond trader, and things were really not going well. Uh, it was becoming apparent that I was going to lose my job, and I was just so stressed out about this. Because you know I'd flunked out of college, I'd had a very roundabout, scenic way through my you know, late teens and 20s, and you know, I'd finally managed to get everything together and get this job that I was proud of. It was, you know, I was a history major. It just it's something I fell into. My friend worked in finance. He got me the job. And you know, it felt good to go home and you know, have something to tell my family I was doing, you know, besides living in the basement and flunking out of college, you know, and it was a very prestigious job and I was very proud of it. And I was obsessed with the thought of keeping it. You know, all day long it was all I thought about was markets. And when things started not going well, I obsessed over it even more. You know, I was so terrified of the thought of losing that job. And when it happened, it was strangely a good day. You know, when I lost my job, it was strangely a good day because it gave me some distance. And I looked back at that, those last two years and I realized that for two years, all of my thoughts, like not just my time, and, and you know, that's when we, when we talk about freedom and doing what you want, you know, I think it's, it's important to think of freedom in, in two ways, both time and physical freedom, but also mental. Because for two years, I had been putting all my creative energy, all my intelligence, all my thoughts into trying to figure out how to, if you want the technical term, do relative value trading and fixed income securities, right? And all of my energy and thought as a human were going into trying to figure that out. 
And then when I lost my job, the day I lost my job, the thing that I feared the absolute most, suddenly, all of those thoughts I'd been putting into keeping the job, I remember I took a walk and I'm like, wow, I, I don't have to think about that anymore. I can think about anything that I want to do. You know, I can figure out what I want to do with my time. And on that day, you know, I made a decision that probably everything after Humans of New York was based on. You know, Humans of New York, it, it's, it, I hope it's, it's had an impact on people's lives that follow it, the people's stories I've told and the millions of people who follow it. But it actually started, and I'm very open, it started with a selfish decision. It started with the decision that I want to spend my time doing exactly what I want to do all day long. Whereas in the last two years, I was spending my time trying to make money. And I viewed myself as a creative person. I think we all have these narratives that we tell ourselves, even if we're not doing what we really want to do. It's we're, we're, we're doing this for now. We're going to get a buffer zone. We're going to get some security. And then we're going to pivot. And we're going to do what we really want to do later on when, we, when the bills are paid and we have some room and we have some time. And that was the narrative that I was telling myself. But two years had gone by. And I had no money. And I had nothing to show for it. And I realized that no amount of money I could have made during that two years could have possibly bought that time back. So I kind of did a flip in my head. And I said, instead of spending my time trying to make money, I'm going for the next foreseeable future of my life, time, try to make just enough money, just enough money to where I could do what I love to do all day long. It was a, a very slight but crucial reorientation of my thinking is that I just got to figure out how to pay the rent. Just pay the rent and eat Cheerios and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, which I've eaten a ton of, just a ton of, so where I can do what I love to do all day long. And at that time, it was photography. And I actually you know, took up photography. I think one of the interesting things about Humans of New York is Humans of New York has existed about six years. I started photographing six years ago. It was almost one and the same. You know, it wasn't the, the, the decision wasn't, you know, I want to do what I'm good at all day, all day long. It was, I want to do what I enjoy doing all day long. And even though I just started taking photos, that's what I love to do. You know, I actually started taking photos to, as a kind of insulation from the stress of my job. Like, I was so obsessed with keeping this job, I go, I need to create a space in my mind where I'm not thinking about that for at least a period of every single day. And photography was the answer to that. You know, I would go downtown Chicago and I would just photograph everything. I loved it. It was like a treasure hunt to me. It was just like, it was so tangible. It was interactive. I was actually engaging with the world instead of sitting behind a computer screen. And at first I was just photographing things because I thought they looked cool. I think I was like going for a metaphor of some sort there <laughs> about the, um, the, the futility of ambition and the relentless decay of time. <laughs> this one's funny. Um, you know, I got to kind of jump out of the narrative for a second because these were all very early photos. I used to go, that's one great thing about digital. I never shot film, which has its disadvantages. But one of the great things about digital is you can take like a thousand photos a day. So the learning curve is steep. You know, I was going downtown Chicago. I would just pick something that I liked 
and I would say, okay, here's a good picture here. I don't know how to take it, so I'm just gonna take 50 of them, you know? <laughs> and then I'd go home and I'd have these, that's how I taught myself to photograph, like just with that digital camera, machine gun fire. I'd photograph everything 50 times. And then I would go home and I'd have my Adobe Lightroom and I would look at like the 50 photos. Oh, that one's the best. Get rid of the other 49. Oh, that one's the best. And through that selection process, I was kind of training my eye and training myself at least what I thought looked best. And so I was taking less and less photos every time I did it. Anyways, this is one of those very early photos and getting out of the narrative a little bit because this is a hilarious story. So I fast forward three months when I got fired. I've been photographing for three months. I needed money to go to New York because I had the idea for Humans of New York and I wanted to pursue it. And you know, there's this kind of image of getting off the Greyhound bus with your guitar and like two suitcases. That's kind of untrue because you need the first month's rent and security deposit. A lot of money. That's a lot of money. I didn't have any. And so I made a series of the most awkward phone calls in my life. I called, I don't even have my phone. I called all my friends who still had jobs. It's like, hey, Joe, yeah, listen, I, I, I know, I know, yeah, I lost my job, I lost my job. Here you're doing well. Here you're doing well. Listen, I got these limited edition photographs that, you know, I gotta, I gotta sell to follow my dreams. And so I sold that one to my friend Andy for $300. So a lot of times people ask me, what was the, not a lot of times, but one time uh, a student newspaper asked me what was the pivotal moment of my life, the most pivotal. And whenever somebody asks me questions, I always try to like, really think about it, because I do that for a living. And it, I thought it would be you know, rude if I ever turned down a picture from somebody or if I don't put some thought into the questions they ask me. So she asked me pivotal, pivotal moment. And with how much Humans of New York has taken over my life, I thought what moment most pushed me down the path of Humans of New York? And this was certainly one of them. Um, this is the first picture I ever took of a person that involved an interaction with a stranger. I'd photographed some people across the street, but this was shortly after I started uh, with humans, or not humans in New York, started photographing in general, and I was sitting on a train in Chicago, and I saw this picture, or I saw this moment, and those kids didn't know each other. They had never spoken to each other before, but they were both looking up and making the exact same kind of face of wonder. And I remember thinking it was a beautiful moment, and I'm sitting on the subway with my camera in my hand, just only been photographing for a couple months, and I wanted that picture so bad because I was hooked. I was like, very passionate about photography. I was obsessed with it for those first two months. And so I remember feeling so scared, but wanting that picture so bad, because are you even allowed to take pictures of strangers? Like, is that illegal? I didn't know, you know? I didn't read the photography blogs, like kids, like ugh, you know what I mean? And so I, took, I brought up my camera really slowly, and you can see that mom makes eye contact with me, and I took the photograph. And the reason I call it the most pivotal moment is because I looked at that picture, and I remember feeling such a sense of pride because even though I'd only been photographing for about two or three months at that point, I knew that I had just taken a photograph that somebody who might have been photographing for 20 years would not have been able to take. Was it because it was perfectly in focus, the composition, the white balance, the aperture, none of that stuff. It was because I had felt fear, I had been afraid to take this picture, and that I had gotten over that fear and taken a picture that somebody with 20 years of technical experience might not have been able to get over. And I looked at that, and because of that, it was a somewhat rarer picture than I'd seen on the internet. I'd seen a lot of graffiti, a lot of urban decay, not a lot of these close-up shots. I mean, there's some, there's some great photographers, but it was just rarer of picture, people. 
And so I remember looking at that, and remember, at this time, I'd kind of decided I wanted to be a photographer. And I knew I'd started too late to become the best photographer in the world. I was 26 years old at the time. But looking at that photo, I go, well, if I can teach myself to get over this fear, you know, maybe I can become one of the best photographers in the world at stopping random people and taking their portraits. And you know, once I realized that, and if you notice a thread through this, if you notice a pattern in the story of Humans of New York, once I discovered something that I did a little bit different, once I discovered something that was a little bit unlike what I'd been doing before that uh, it's seen a lot of, then I focused on that. And once I took that picture of a person and I realized it was a little bit unique, that's all I did after that. Oh wait, I gotta show you. So I think this is funny because this is the very first portrait I ever take. And if you guys follow Humans of New York, you know all the photos have hundreds of thousands of likes and thousands of comments. First portrait I ever took, zero likes. <laughs> uh, one comment from someone on my community college quiz bowl team. Uh, and it said, racial harmony, I like it. <laughs> that was the first Humans of New York portrait, I guess. Um, and so along this way, I started taking photos of people. This was the first idea for Humans of New York. And you'll notice that it looks nothing like what Humans of New York is today. This is the Humans of New York that being completely broke, I had never even been to New York City before the age of 26. I moved to New York two weeks after seeing the city for the first time. Didn't know anybody here. Didn't have any money. Lived in a sublease in Bedford-Stuyvesant. It wasn't quite a closet, like Chase said, but it was a mattress on the floor in a room. It was sad. And again, Cheerios, turkey sandwiches, all to photograph all day long, because that was the goal, is I wanted to figure out a way to make just enough money to photograph all day long. And my idea was I was going to move to New York City, and I was going to take 10,000 random photos of people on a street, and I was going to plot them on a map. You know, that was my idea. It was like, you know, I'm just trying to think of how to draw attention to my work. I'm like, oh, I can be the guy who does this, you know? And so I want you to notice that the humans of New York that I risked everything on, the humans of New York that I, you know, told all my friends and family I was chasing even though I only had three months experience, moved to New York, I was so poor for so long, looks nothing like the humans of New York that became, later became successful which is such an important distinction. You know, if I had waited for the idea of Humans of New York before doing Humans of New York, I would have never started. Humans of New York today is known for stopping random people on the street and telling their stories. The Humans of New York that I committed my life to looks nothing like that. It was all about photography. And the Humans of New York that grew out of that came from me doing this every day doing what I loved every single day and making hundreds of small innovations and tinkering incremental changes along the way to later became, to become what was eventually successful. So I always say you can't wait for perfect. So many people, I don't know if there's some in the crowd who can, who can identify with this, but you know, it's so safe to sketch your ideas in your journal, you know, your plan for your book, or you know, talking, thinking about the perfect band or the perfect thing, just because it's so safe to plan. And I think what we're trying to do is we're trying to plan away risk. You know, I think we're in the comfort of our rooms with our journals, we're trying to make a plan that is so perfect that our friends are gonna tell us it's a good idea. Nobody told me Humans of New York was a good <laughs> idea, by the way. 
oh, you're going to take pictures and people and put it on Facebook where there's nothing but pictures of people. Go for it, buddy. <laughs> like, go for it, you know? And it's just like, I think everybody is trying to plan so they have an idea that is so perfect it cannot fail, and that will never come. That perfect moment will never come. So you have to start before you're ready, and you have to trust that not only you, but your work will come what it needs to be along the way. So these are the photos that I was taking early on. Look at the faces on those two. I know. Again, these are just moments. And this was probably the second most pivotal moment. I'd been in New York for several months. Um, you know, I maybe had 1,000 Facebook fans. Probably half of them were for family and friends and people I sent direct messages to begging to follow my page. A lot of that involved in success, by the way. It's just like faking it, just asking people to follow your stuff, even if they don't care about it. Uh, a lot of that in the beginning. Um, and so I'd been doing this. I'd taken thousands of portraits at this time. Things hadn't really taken off yet. Uh, and then I photographed this woman one day. And I remember thinking it wasn't a great picture, like especially compared to the other ones that I'd just shown you. you know, I wasn't too happy with it. I didn't quite get the picture that I wanted. And I was almost not going to post it on my page. But I remember that that woman had said something to me. She said, I used to be a different color every single day. But one day I was green, and that was a great day. So I've been green for 15 years. She said that to me. And I remember I, I wasn't going to post it on the blog, but then I got sick the next day, and I didn't have anything to post. So I said, well, I've got that eh, kind of crappy photo of the green woman. But she told me, she gave me that quote. I was like, I'm just going to throw that quote on top of the photo and throw it up. And it was the most engaged with photo I'd ever put up, like 37 likes or something like that back then. <laughs> and you know, it kind of it made sense, though, you know, when I thought about it. Because remember on the subway, when I realized that the thing that I might be able to do differently was probably not become the best photographer, but I did have a chance by doing it thousands of times to maybe becoming one of the best people at stopping a random person on the street and making them feel comfortable enough to let me take their photograph. And at this time, I'd done that thousands of times, and I had gotten very good at it. And if that's what I did differently, you know, didn't it only make sense to learn about this person? Since I'd already gotten over that fear, I'd done it so much where I wasn't afraid to talk to anybody. You know, wouldn't it make sense to find out who these people are and share their stories with other people who might be curious, but hadn't gotten over that fear, you know? And again, just like beforehand, you know, when I first got that picture of the portrait because I overcame the fear and I took nothing but pictures of people, once I figured that out, I pretty much did nothing but post stories. And, you know, the, the interview process has evolved itself. You know, it started out, you know, at the very beginning where, like, the green lady, she just said that to me just off the cuff. And it started out where I would just add little quotes that they happened to say to me. Then I started asking questions, you know. Then I started asking follow-up questions, and the interviews grew longer, and the captions grew longer. And so now, when I'm stopping somebody on the street, again, you know, when it started, I moved to Humans of New York to just take pictures of, of people. It was 30-second interactions. 
Now, when I'm stopping people on the street, I'm spending 45 minutes with them, sometimes an hour and a half, which is difficult to do in New York. It's, you know, it's made my job harder. I've got to find people who have an hour and a half of time, which can be difficult. Um, and, you know, and humans of New York kind of congealed into what it is today. You know, and, and what it, I think it will always remain and what I will always focus on. That you know, humans of New York, again, it's just like it was a realization of what I had figured out that I could do differently than everybody else and that I could possibly offer the world. And through doing it thousands of times, again, based on just the fact that I love doing it, I had gotten to be where I could create this bubble with a stranger on the street that within three minutes of meeting them, you know, we'd be talking about things that they might not be talking about with people who are closest to them. Their greatest guilt, their greatest struggles, the saddest moments of their life, their HIV, you know? And so once I learned that, the humans of New York, and it remains my attempt to become as good as possible at doing that, of creating that bubble on the street with a stranger and telling their stories. And once I realized that it was about that bubble, I realized it wasn't about New York. It wasn't about pictures. It wasn't about photography. It wasn't about portraits. And it wasn't about New York either. It was about that bubble. That's what I'd become. That's what I'd become good at, is creating that bubble. And I could take that bubble anywhere. You know, this is from a, a series on pediatric cancer. It's one of the neatest things I've ever done, the saddest things I've ever done, the most powerful things I've ever done, is had these random interviews on the pediatric cancer ward of Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital for two weeks with the oncologists, the surgeons, the family, the patients, everybody who was peripherally involved with pediatric cancer. And the reason that that interested me so much because to me, pediatric cancer is like the greatest injustice of nature that there is. And it's the, it's the thing that, I mean, when you face it head on, like, how do you come out with an idea of a benevolent universe or a benevolent world or justice, you know, when your child has cancer? And I really wanted to meet the people who were fighting this and were seeking to heal this and were seeking to cure this. Um, and, you know, it was one of the, the best series I ever did. The audience raised almost $4 million while we did the series. I was invited to go to five different prisons where I did the exact same interview that I just randomly, you know, developed through stopping people on the streets of New York City to interview inmates, which was such a special experience, you know, to, to give their stories the exact same treatment as anybody on the street. Uh, I've been to uh, about 10 different countries interviewing refugees. Uh, these refugees were in Iraq, that's Pakistan, spent two weeks there, which is also very proud of. That's Jerusalem, India, Uganda. Um, yeah, I was able to interview President Obama and Hillary Clinton recently. Um, you know, all again, just the exact same style. Like when, when I interviewed both of them, you know, I just I did it the exact same way on the street. I didn't think of any questions, didn't do any research. You know, I just kind of came in, and the, and the way I normally interview people on the street is, you know, I, I have like two or three questions I started out with normally. Uh, what is your biggest struggle right now? That's a big one. Uh, I find that, you know, that is kind of an invitation for people to just unload what they've been carrying around to that day or that week or that month. So a lot of times that jumps right into the conversation. 
Um, with Hillary, it was how do you differ from people's perceptions of you? But normally I only walk in or I approach somebody with like two or three questions. And then after that, it's, it's all an exercise in being very present. You know, I had somebody, it was an inadvertent compliment, but it was a big compliment. A student followed me around one day. And he said, you know, I used to think that you were somebody who interviewed somebody and took their photo. Now I, I realize you're somebody who just goes around and talks with people and then takes their photo, which was a very important distinction because, you know, the interviews, I don't, I'm never thinking about the next question. I'm just listening very intently to the person. And almost all of my questions are based on something they had just said, you know? They will, I will ask them a question, they'll say something. I will ask a question based on what they just said. They'll say something else. And so, you know, they're, they're all about being present and being very conversational. And which is the exact same process, you know, I did with the refugees, with inmates, and even with President Obama. And, you know, I put this picture after that one because obviously, you know, that was amazing. The, the ride has been amazing these last six years. You know, bigger than I ever could have imagined. To give you an idea of, like, the kind of success I was going for, like, I, early on, you know, with Humans of New York, I was starting to get, like, 10 new Facebook fans a day that I didn't know. And I remember just doing the math in my head and thinking, in three years, if I work every single day, I could have 10,000 Facebook fans. And to me, that represented success. Like, maybe I could sell photographs, you know, maybe I could pay my rent with this. Like, 10,000 people will be following it. Like, that was my idea of what success meant when I started. And now it's become two number one New York Times bestselling books. I've been able to go to 20 different countries with the United Nations. I've interviewed the president of the Oval Office. Like, all these amazing things have happened. And, you know, when I tell this story, you know, I want to, I don't want to be one of those guys that's like, oh, just do what I do and all these amazing things will happen to you too. Because a lot of these, I was in the right place at the right time. My idea happened to coincide with social media, Facebooks, pages, things like a lot of them, you know, lucky things happened to me. But when I get asked now, what's the best thing about doing Humans of New York? I don't talk about any of that stuff. The best thing was and remains the fact that I get to wake up every single day and choose what work I want to do. And that's important. It's not that I get to wake up and choose not to work, because I think that's a lot of people's ideas of following their dreams. Like, oh, I'm going to get to the point where I drink beers with my friends all day. Like, how am I going to do that? Become famous. You know what I mean? <laughs> and when in reality, following your dreams correctly is nothing but hard work. So it's not the ability to not work that is the ultimate goal. It's the ability to choose your work. And with everything that's happened, the best part of Humans in New York remains the fact that I get to wake up every morning and do exactly what I want to do that day, which remains telling people stories, which is still as exciting as it's always been. And so what I say is that that was my original goal. And while I can't promise this amazing outsized success that Humans of New York has happened to bring upon me, you know, that was never the goal. And I am confident if that somebody makes that commitment to themselves, that they are going to do whatever it takes to make just enough money to where they can control their time and do what they want to do all day long, choose their work. That is something that I think everyone can achieve in some way or another. So thank you. Uh, 
I asked the producers if we could have five, eight minutes to ask Brandon some questions. Um, again, uh, to have a guy of his stature and the fact that he, he left what everybody else thought that was the right thing for him to pursue his passion. To me, that's every bit as important as the success that he's had. Uh, and so let's take this opportunity to ask him some questions. There's already people like, okay, go ahead, raise your hands. I'll, I'll get right to you. Yes, sir, you were first and highest on that hand. Nice job. Yeah, stand Hi. up. Hi, I'm, I'm Rich. I'm a portrait photographer, and I do portraits that you know last two or three hours, and I have my blog, and I tell a little story about the client, you know, um, but I always struggle with what to put in that blog. Like, should I put the perspective of what resonates most with the clients of the story? Or sometimes what's really personal is hard to put. Like, if you get, you know, some deep, personal, hurtful information from that individual, sometimes I feel like I shouldn't put that up there. Right. How do you decide that? Well, I mean, I don't make that distinction. Um, I, you know, first of all, the... The process, I'm very upfront at the beginning with what the process is. You know, obviously this is a, a very widely read blog, you know. Um, so I always say anything you don't want to answer, you don't have to answer. Anything you can't think of the answer to, that's fine. So I give them that agency at the beginning of anything you don't want to talk about, we don't, you don't have to talk about. Another additional level of agency that I give people is that if they do start talking about something very personal, I also give them the agency of telling the story anonymously. So you'll sometimes see hands and you'll sometimes see feet. Um, I've, always, I've also added to that again that if they are talking about somebody else who's not present in a personal way, then I will usually insist on anonymity then too to protect that person. But your worry, is, as I've learned, is, is probably not as, it's, it's probably more of a, a boogeyman than you realize because when I do give people that agency, when I say 20 million people are gonna read this, we don't have to talk about anything you don't wanna talk about, there are, it's hardly ever, hardly ever, hardly, like less than 0.5% of a time when I ask somebody any question, will they say I don't wanna talk about that? The time that that agency is actually taken is almost never. In addition to that, I say, if you want to send me an email, if it gets too much, I will take it down. Only happened six or seven times in six years. So it's, you know, that, that has been one of the main amazing educational experiences for me of doing Humans of New York, is that I went from being terrified of what a stranger would think if I snapped their photo, to now walking up to somebody like with the expectation that in a few minutes, you know, we'll be talking about things that they might not have shared with anybody. Uh, and I think, you know, through I think there's two threads running through people's minds when when they're when they're sharing something that makes them vulnerable. One is the the fear of being exposed and the and the fear of being vulnerable. And the other is the appreciation of being heard and the validation of being heard. And I find that, that this always outruns this. Yeah. Um, Two-part question. Okay. First, do you record all of this? And then do you go back and figure out what it was? Right. How do you remember it? And the second time is, after you have talked with them mm -hmm. a lot, mm -hmm. the time then of bringing out your camera and photographing them, what is that transition like? Okay. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, Thank both you. make sense. Um, the, I take notes. I take notes on my phone. And I don't take notes I, through the entire process. One 
benefit of having done this 10,000 times, not only done you know, thousands of interviews, but taken those interviews and synthesized them into thousands of stories, that now I know in the interview what the caption's going to be. I've just done it so many times that I know when I'm not hearing it and I know when I'm hearing it. And so, and, and, and what do I look for, and this could help you as well, is, like, and it fits into the theme of this. It's like just as every time I realized when I was doing something different, I focused on that and just did that, it's kind of the same process that goes on with the interview. I've interviewed thousands of people. It's so hard for me to hear something new. I can almost never hear a new opinion or a new philosophy. Almost always that difference and that uniqueness has to come out of a story because all our stories are much more unique than our philosophies and our opinions. And so I will ask questions and kind of you know, out of my interest. And once I start hearing something new, once I hear a different angle, then I pull out my phone and start taking notes. So I don't take notes during the whole interview. I take notes during the part of the interview that I know will later be turned into the caption. Photos. There is no transition. I do it while it's happening. Yeah, and, that's, and I tell them that. They go, you know, I might photograph part of my spiel at the beginning. Anything you don't want to answer, you don't have to answer. If you can't think of an answer, that's fine. I might photograph you while you're talking and while you're thinking, uh, which tends to be the best photos. Can be awkward. Um, it's, that is an imperfect part of my uh, process. It's not like film where it keeps rolling because we'll be having like a moment and somebody will be expressing an emotion that I want to capture, and so they'll be sharing something, and it's like, you know, it, it's, there's no way around it. Um, so it can get awkward, but that's how I do it, yeah. Hi, I'm Omar. Hey. Thanks for coming. Uh, I grew up on the streets of New York, and if you came up to me, I'd be like, what are you selling? Get away from me. Uh, it's just how, when we walk the street, you know. So was, how did that evolve, like that challenge well, of, I mean, and how much, what percent of rejection did you initially get? I think, you know, the, what you just identified is the reason that, you know, Humans of New Yorker is, is hard to replicate. Because it's hard <laughs> to, uh, to go out there and, and deal with that energy, you know, all day long. You know, it's, uh, especially in the beginning, now Humans of New York, I'd say half the people I stop in New York have at least heard of the blog. Um, but, you know, beforehand it was, you know, I'm just a guy with a photo project, you know, can I take your photo? And rejection was a huge part of it. You know, when I was first, uh, you know, beginning, uh, maybe one out of every three people would say yes. And as you can imagine, in New York there's a wide variety of no's you get, you know. <laughs> every yes is the same, but every no is different. Uh, <laughs> And so, you know, through doing it, you know, enough times, and, there, and there's ways, and it, it's understandable. It's like when somebody comes up, and it happens to me too, when somebody walks up to you in New York and tries to stop you, I don't care how nice they are, it's just like full defense mode, because it's just like they're going to ask me for my credit card number, they're going to ask for something. And normally the nicer they are up front, the bigger the ask in the back. Hey, yeah, I just want to know how to get to Penn Station. Great shoes. Listen, you know what I mean? It's like, uh, and so, you know, that, yeah, it's very hard to overcome. And there's no place harder than New York City. I've been to Iran. I've been to Pakistan. I've been to Iraq. I've been to Uganda, or not Uganda, but Democratic Republic of Congo, you know, South Sudan, places where, you know, the ideas of America might not be the friendliest. Um, nowhere close to how many times I get rejected in New York. Uh, in Iran, I think I asked, you know, 150 people, maybe four or five said no. Yeah. So New York, it's about one out of every three say no. Some days it seems like nine out of every ten people say no. Yeah. I remember when my first my book, 
first became a number one New York Times bestseller, and I was just like walking on air. I, I was just like, I felt like the coolest person in the universe. And I remember I went out on the street the next day and just like 10 people just like <laughs> stiff-armed me in a row. Uh, so yeah, it can, it, can, it can be a humbling experience on some days. I'm Ophia and I worked in the criminal justice field for two years and um, I just recently quit. But I remember when I was following the series of stories in the correction facilities and I think one of the questions that really got to me was like, you know, what made him go into the correction facility? So I would like to know the answer to that. Um, you know, very early on, uh, I would have people come up to me and say, this is very early, like, oh, my mom didn't want me to move to New York, so I showed her your blog, and then she was less frightened. Or I didn't want to move to this neighborhood, and then I saw portraits and stories on your blog from that neighborhood, and then I realized it was no big deal. Um, and so early on, based on the feedback I was getting, I realized that one of the places that this kind of work has the biggest impact is among populations that are feared. Um, and that's why you know, some of the work I'm proudest of is Pakistan, Iran, places where there's nothing but negative narratives coming out in our media about it. And therefore, you know, our perceptions of it are very skewed. Uh, I would say the criminal population is one of those populations where you know, I think people get lumped together. They're criminals, they broke the law. Um, and so you know, I think it was, it was interesting to me to go in there and apply. And I always say I don't give a positive image. Sometimes people from Pakistan will come up to me and will say, thank you so much for showing a positive image of our country. And I always kind of correct them. And I say, well, no, what I did was gave a random image. I stopped random people. I didn't look for the drone strikes, didn't look for the militants, didn't look for the extremists for those stories to tell. I just stopped random people and told those stories. And therefore, it comes off as positive in comparison to the extreme narratives that are coming out. Uh, and I just wanted to apply that, you know, that exact same formula to a population of inmates, which I did, which I think revealed a lot of nuance, a lot of complexity uh, behind what eventually led to their crimes, which hopefully you know made people think you know a little bit more deeper about what's right, what's wrong, and and what's good and what's evil. All right, that about wraps it up. But uh, hey, before you bounce, two quick things. Um, actually, I'm gonna go three quick things. Thing one, a thank you so much for being a part of this community. And I'm not quite sure how you you landed on this podcast. It doesn't matter to me. The fact that we're all in this together and that we're able to have a conversation is awesome. I feel uh, honored to be in your ears right now and that uh, you've paid attention to what I've been doing, what Creative Live has been doing for some time. And whether it's been a day or 10 years, I just want to say thank you. It's also really important to know on the backside of that that I, I do a lot of responding to comments. So hit me up, on, you know, direct message me on, on Instagram or Twitter or at me. I try and respond as much as possible. So let's have a conversation that transcends me just being in your ears here. Let's try and do it some, somewhere out there in, on the internet land. That's thing one. Thing two, again, I'm not quite sure what channels you pay attention to me and my work, but please go check out. I'm at Chase Jarvis or slash Chase Jarvis or whatever on all the platforms. And it's really important to me. Also, if you wouldn't mind checking out Creative Live, it's something that not only myself, but 120 other committed hardcore badass people come to work every day uh, to build the place where creators and entrepreneurs learn so check that out they're just slash creative live or at creative live all over out there on the internet all right until again uh, probably tomorrow i hope i'll hear you i'll be in your ears maybe tomorrow and i'll look for your comments on the internets bye <laughs>